Barbara A. Perry is a senior fellow and co-chair of the Miller Center's Presidential Oral History Program at the University of Virginia, where she interviews senior members of presidential administrations, most recently Secretaries of State, Defense, and Treasury, Attorney General, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. She is also the Project Director of the Edward M. Kennedy Oral History and the author of more than 35 articles and book chapters. Previously, she was a Carter Glass Professor of Government and Founding Director of the Center for Civic Renewal at Sweetbriar College in Virginia. In 1994-1995, she served as the Judicial Fellow at the U.S. Supreme Court, where she received the Justice Tom C. Clark Award as the Outstanding Fellow that year. In addition to providing research for Chief Justice William Rehnquist's speeches, she briefed more than 3,000 visitors to the court from 70 different countries. Professor Perry was a senior fellow for civics education at the University of Louisville's McConnell Center in 2006 to 2007, where she is currently a non-resident fellow. From 1996 through 2008, she taught in the Supreme Court Summer Institute, co-sponsored by the Supreme Court Historical Society and Street Law. In 2012, she received the Virginia Social Science Association Scholar Award in Political Science. The Sons of the American Revolution, Virginia, Virginia Society, awarded her their 2013 Silver Good Citizenship Medal for her outstanding achievements in the study, writing, and teaching of American history. Since 2010, she has served as an adjunct faculty member at the Federal Executive Institute in Charlottesville, providing seminars to senior federal executives on the Kennedy presidency, the U.S. Supreme Court, and leadership. A native of Louisville, Kentucky, Professor Perry earned a Ph.D. in government from the University of Virginia, an M.A. in politics, philosophy, and economics from Oxford University, and a B.A. in political science with highest honors from the University of Louisville. Please join me in welcoming Barbara Perry. Well, first of all, thank you, Shara, for that very nice introduction. And Shara tells me that she's a rising third year here at Mr. Jefferson's University and majoring in biochemistry. And I said I could just look at her and know how smart she is, and she is uh, headed to medical school. Thank you, David. So we're going to talk today um, about a topic that I understand for some of you uh, who are coming back as your 50th anniversary of graduating uh, from Mr. Jefferson's University that you had, uh, some of you had requested, uh, because this coincides, of course, this story of the Kennedys and the Kennedy presidency coincide with your time here at the university. And others, I hope, will find it interesting based on their remembrances of this time period and of this very interesting woman. Uh, before we start, I'll just tell you how I became interested in Rose Kennedy. And as Shara said, I, I study the Kennedy presidency and the Kennedy family. So I have done uh, a book on Jacqueline Kennedy and her first ladyship, and now this book on Rose Kennedy. Uh, and as Shara also explained, I'm the head of the uh, Edward Kennedy 
pro project at the uh, Miller Center here at the university. So be watching for that uh, in the next probably seven or eight months. We, along with the uh, Edward Kennedy Institute for the United States Senate in Boston, will be releasing that project. And there are 300 interviews that were done uh, for that project, including uh, th almost 30 of Senator Kennedy's. And of course, some of it will relate to his time here uh, in law school uh, at, the, at the University of Virginia. But I became interested in the Kennedys um, when I, if you can believe this, when I was only four years old. My mother took me in October of 1960 to downtown Louisville, Kentucky from the suburbs where we lived. She drove my two older brothers and me uh, down to the court square in the heart of, of Louisville. And she put us right in front of a podium, much like this. And we got there early so we could be the first ones and stand right in front of the podium to see Senator John F. Kennedy, who was campaigning for the presidency and was one month away from winning the presidency by a very narrow margin, as you know, over Richard Nixon. And so until she passed on, Mother would say to me, don't you remember that day when, when we saw and heard President Kennedy? And I'd say, well, Mother, I was only four, so I, I can remember the balloons and the people and the confetti, but I can't quite quote to you what the future president said, so we'd have a chuckle over that. But then I'd say, you turned me into a historian and a political scientist when I was only four years old. And of course, my next memory is of the president's assassination. I was in the second grade in, in a Catholic school in Louisville, and we were all marched off to the church uh, to pray for the president. So that made, as you can imagine, quite an impact on my young psyche. So in addition to being interested in President Kennedy, uh, I've always been interested in his mother. Who produced this man and Senator Edward Kennedy and Attorney General Robert Kennedy and uh, all the Kennedy women? Who produced these nine children? And so today what we're going to do is, is go down this list and talk about Rose's story and, first of all, images of Rose, because so much of the Kennedy family is at not is, is imagery, uh, that they created of themselves, that they promoted in the media, that the media usually would be only too happy to accept. Uh, and Rose was a major figure uh, in that process of creating Kennedy family imagery. So we're going to talk about her image and how she created images of the family. And we're going to be telling her story. And you'll notice there on the screen um, that I have said her story underlined because sometimes she has been overshadowed by the men in her family. First, her father, Honey Fitz Fitzgerald, uh, who was the mayor of Boston when she was a girl. Then her husband, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., who was the ambas U.S. ambassador to the court of St. James prior to World War II in England. Uh, and then her three sons, who became very famous in their own right. So it's, as it turned out, Rose outlived all but one of those men and eventually got to tell her story, and I'm helping her to tell that story, in part because in 2006, the Kennedy Library in Boston released her archives to the public, and I went through 250 boxes of her letters and her papers. It's, she seemed to keep everything, everything that passed through her hands, she kept, and she lived to be 104. So she was born in 1890, and she died in January of 1995. So as you can imagine, for someone who's interested in this topic, it was like Christmas morning every day when I would go to the Kennedy Library. And then you might be asking yourself, what could you possibly say about this woman or this family that would be new? So when we get to that, I will signal you and say, here's something that I think that is, is new about her, and I think there will be other things along the way too. And then we want to divide her life and her contributions into her political life, which she literally started almost at the age I was telling you. When she was five, her father, 
John F. Fitzgerald, for whom the future president would be named, uh, was elected to Congress from Massachusetts. And so Rose said from the time she was five years old, she was in the public limelight, which she tended to enjoy. And so then she became one of the most extraordinary campaigners for her family in her lifetime. And then she also, of course, became a great philanthropist. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, too. Finally, a little bit about Rose behind the scenes. We are certainly going to focus on the image and what she wanted you to know about her, but there are some things, as you can imagine, in that family that she didn't necessarily focus on or she focused on in a rather interesting and veiled way, and I will point those out. And finally, we'll say a word or two uh, about her legacy. So if at any time that I'm speaking, first of all, give me a wave if you have any hearing issues. Um, I'm blessed with my father's voice, which tended to carry, so I tend to have an outdoor voice indoors. Uh, so let me know, though, if you have any hearing issues, if you have any questions as we go along, but I'll allow plenty of time at the end for Q&A, so I hope you'll be thinking of your questions and comments as we go along. Well, my first question is to you. This is the audience participation part of our talk today, and that is, what are your images or memories of Rose Kennedy? And I've given you several here from which to choose, but you may have these, but you may have others as well. So anyone want to volunteer uh, a memory that they have or an image that they have of Mrs. Kennedy? Yes, so this comment is that um, this gentleman remembers that Mrs. Kennedy, Rose Kennedy, was uh, always the leader of dinnertime conversations uh, with her nine children, and that that was in part what led them to have an interest in public affairs. And that is true with one modification that I would make. She was always the leader of the discussions when her husband wasn't at home, which was frequently, and we'll talk a little bit more about his life and, and their life together and their life apart, but you're absolutely right. She was always the leader of the dinnertime conversations when her husband wasn't home, but she grew up in a very patriarchal society, a patriarchal family, and a patriarchal church, and so she was made secondary, sometimes tertiary, in all three of those realms. So when Joseph Kennedy was home, he ruled the roost, and he would run the dinner table conversations. But she was so detail-oriented, and her children spanned from the period of when Joe Jr. was born in 1915, uh, I should add a honeymoon baby, uh, and all the way up to when Senator Edward Kennedy was born in 1932. So that's quite an age spread <laughs> in the children. So what she would do is she'd gather the younger children around, and they would eat an hour earlier, and they They'd have a little table where they would sit and she would talk about things that young children are interested in. And then she would convene the older children an hour later and then she would lead that conversation with interesting parts from the church. She wanted to talk to them about religion. She wanted to talk about current events. She would give them grammar lessons and arithmetic lessons all at the dinner table. So none of this, you know, sort of half falling asleep at the dinner table. No, you had to be on your toes with Rose. So thank you for that. Other memories? Anyone? Yes. Oh, yes, the note cards, and, and um, I think we might even have a picture of that today. So the famous note cards that Mrs. Kennedy kept, she did this after about her fourth child was born, and she had four in about five years. <laughs> so, again, she was very, very busy. And every morning she believed thoroughly in health care, and so she thought that the healthiest thing to do for children in the 1920s was to give them plenty of fresh air. So she would take them out every morning, and she'd have one in a baby stroller and maybe one in a tailor tot, and then and leading several by the hand who could walk 
at that time. And she passed by a stationery store in Brookline, Massachusetts, and she saw um, index cards. And she saw a little box for index cards. And she went in and bought it. And then she said, oh, I, got, I have an idea. I will keep all the records of my children on those index cards. So she wrote down where they were born and when they were born. She kept all their medical information. Of course, there weren't any vaccines in those days, but there were a few medical tests, any kind of procedure. They all seemed to get appendicitis, so she'd write down when they had that. And she was a fanatic about weight, her own weight, her children's weight. They were either too fat or too thin. No one was ever just right. And so every week she measured them and she weighed them and she'd write that down on her card as well. And she kept all their religious records. When and where were they baptized? Who were the godparents? When were they confirmed? When and where did they make their first communion? And this she was so proud of. And it would be similar to people now keeping those records on their computer, but that's another good, good element of Rose Kennedy that she'd be so pleased that you remembered both of these memories. So what I'm including here is Rose Kennedy on the left. She's about in the center of the picture. You'll see President Kennedy in the middle, and she is just to the right of him as you face this picture. This is now when her family is complete. So all nine children are gathered around her. Notice Joe in the middle, always the center of gravity in the family, with little Teddy, who's about five or six years old, on his lap, and all the other children gathered around. This is 1938, just before the family leaves for England, and they go to have Joe assume the ambassadorship to the court of St. James. And this is what when Rose is proudest of her family, because they're all together, they're all looking as perfect as they can be, and she is taking credit for that. In the middle is probably her proudest moment, uh, maybe of her entire life. This takes place December 1962 uh, at the Statler Hilton Hotel in Washington. It is the first annual dinner for international research into mental retardation because her third child and first daughter Rosemary was diagnosed with what was then called mental retardation in the 1920s. And as you know, the Kennedy family has been very prominent in that philanthropic effort. And so at this very moment that you see Rose standing and glowing with son Jack, the president, next to her, she had just been introduced to the audience by the Master of Ceremonies, who was Adlai Stevenson. And Adlai Stevenson introduced her as the most successful employment agent in the United States. And that is because at this moment, December 1962, son Jack was the president. He's giving her a standing ovation. Son Bobby was the attorney general in his brother's cabinet. And son Teddy had just been elected to Jack's Senate seat uh, in the fall of that year. And in January 63, he would become uh, senator from Massachusetts. So she is beaming. I also want you to notice the way she's standing. You know, she's had one arm tucked behind her back. You will never have a picture taken, I guarantee you, after this moment when you will not turn, as she always did. She turned her side to the camera and put one hand behind her back. And she told her children, always do that because it makes you look thinner. <laughs> so you do that, and it's a good tip to remember. Well, sadly, the last picture that I have here on the right is Rose in utter desolation. You can see it etched in her face. This is November 25th, 1963. She's at Arlington Cemetery for the burial of Jack three days after his assassination. And you can see for her daughter Eunice to her left and son Bobby that they are in utter desolation on that day. So I wanted to mention to you some, some additional images that I gained by doing uh, five years of research uh, on this remarkable woman. And it starts at the top. Anybody know what that brown item is at the top left-hand corner of this photo? Yes. 
Who said coconut? What's the coconut's image and, and prominence? And Yes, sir, you get an A for this class because this is the correct identification of the famous coconut. And I know you all know the story of Lieutenant J.G. John F. Kennedy, August of 1963, on his PT boat. He is skippering a PT boat in Blackett Strait off the Solomon Islands, and his PT boat is sliced in half by a Japanese destroyer. Two men are killed outright. The rest of the crew survives, including Kennedy, of course, but some are severely injured. This was part Part of the beginning of his back issue, although he had had some of that even before he entered the service, probably shouldn't even have been in the service because of his ill health and his delicate health. But in any event, if you've seen the Cliff Robertson movie or read the story, you know that uh, ultimately the, the half of the boat that was still afloat sank and the crew had to swim for their lives to an island that was several miles away from the point of the collision. Uh, the future president swam, uh, thank goodness he had been on the Harvard swim team, he swam the breaststroke uh, leading the crew uh, with a crew member who was so badly burned he could not swim. And so the president put the strap of that man's life preserver in his mouth and towed that man for several miles uh, through the ocean uh, to get to the island. And they, they were lost for a week. Finally, some native islanders turned up. They were hoping they were friendly. Uh, they didn't speak English. Kennedy had nothing to write with, no paper, no pens or pencils. So he took a coconut hull, the hull of a coconut that was smooth, got out his service knife and carved an SOS message, hoped it would get into friendly hands. And sure enough, it did. The native islanders took it to an Australian coast watcher, and the president and his crew were saved. Now you say, well, that's an interesting and heroic story of the future president. Why are you including this in a story of Rose Kennedy? And here's the reason. When Jack finally got leave, uh, still very sick with malaria, he also had undiagnosed Addison's disease at that point, back severely injured, he was finally sent home. And he goes to Palm Beach to visit with his family, and he has brought with him this part of the coconut with the message carved on it. And his mother says, if you don't do something, Jack, with that coconut, it's just going to diminish and you will lose it forever. You need to preserve it. And sure enough, he did. He went to some company and they put it under glass and you might remember that he took that all the way to the Oval Office and it was on his desk in the White House in the Oval Office and I have to give his mother credit for that. So the moral of the story is always listen to your mother. Now the other point that I wanted to raise about Rose and, and her image is here in the middle. In addition to those 250 boxes of archives at the Kennedy Library that I went through, I also began to find on uh, eBay, on uh, consignment shops on the internet other private held, privately held letters that Rose had written in her life. And what she especially loved to do was go to famous homes. And then while she was there, she would take out the stationery from those famous homes. This says the White House. And she would write notes to her friends and her family. In this instance, she's writing in September 1963. She is writing to Mrs. Robert McNamara, the wife of the defense secretary in her son's cabinet, to thank her for including her in a reception for the daughter of Haile Selassie, who was called Princess Ruth Nesta. And so Rose wanted to say, thank you so much for including me. Actually, Rose was filling in for her daughter-in-law, Jackie. At this time, just after Haile Selassie arrived, Jacqueline Kennedy went to Union Station in Washington with the president and welcomed him. And then she got on a plane and left for the Mediterranean to go sailing with Aristotle Onassis, who was dating her sister, 
And you might remember that Jackie Kennedy lost a baby, and along with the president, in August of 63, she was so badly depressed that the president said, you need to get away and get a vacation, go sailing with your sister. I don't think the president said go sailing with Aristotle and Nassus, but in any event, that is what happened, and we know what happened um, five years after that. Mrs. Kennedy married Aristotle and Nassus. But this is very typical of Rose to sort of tout to the world that she's important and that at this point she's actually filling in for the first lady. This is Rose's image of herself that I wanted to share with you. These two pictures you'll notice are the same. The, the, on the left is the cover of her memoir that she published in 1974 called Times to Remember. This is where she created the imagery in written form for her family. But she obviously loved that photograph that was taken of her at that time when she would have been in her early 80s. And it was used then by Life magazine when she passed away in 1995 to commemorate her. And Teddy Kennedy once said Life magazine was the Kennedy family's picture album because they loved the Kennedy family and they loved taking pictures of them. So I think Rose would have been pleased that, that this photograph was chosen. So now if the technology gods are with us, I'm going to share with you as we go along two or three links to Rose on video because even though she was very much a part of the age of newspapers and glossy magazines like Life, she also was a woman of the newsreel age as well as as the television age. So I want to share with you just a few clips, again, if we can get this um, from the technology gods. So if you'll bear with me, I will pull this up and see if I can show you about three minutes of Rose in 1974, just after her memoir came out. She's being interviewed um, at Palm Beach, the family's compound there, by uh, Robin McNeil, who founded the McNeil-Lair Report. So hold on one moment, bear with me. Honey Fitz became mayor of Boston. There we go. Hooray, David! Did it. She was beach and high on a sport, talking with her about screen. the life and family, the triumphs and tragedies that millions of people around the world have lived through with them. Boston was a bustling, prosperous city as one writer put it, awesomely self-satisfied. It gave birth not only to the American Revolution, but the economic prosperity which followed. In mid-19th century, it absorbed thousands of desperately poor Irish, escaping from death in the potato famine. One of these was a farm laborer from County Wexford called Thomas Fitzgerald. One of his 11 children fought his way to the top, John Francis Fitzgerald known as Honey Fitz, became mayor of Boston, and Rose Fitzgerald was his eldest child. She was beautiful, poised, well-educated. She spent a year abroad studying French and German. Her debut was marked by a civic holiday. But for all her charms and her father's success, the Fitzgeralds were still Boston Irish, and the doors of old Yankee society were closed. Well, we just grew up thinking that the um Yankees, as we call them, were in one group, and the Irish Catholics were in another group. And it was understood, and I knew when I grew up that I would not be admitted to their clubs. And yeah. I knew I was well, as well educated as any of them. And uh, at my debut, I had all Catholics. And then you'd marry a Catholic. In some ways, it was much easier.
Rose found an Irish Catholic fiance whose immigrant grandfather had been as poor as her own, whose father was as determined as hers to be accepted by the Boston Brahmins. Young Joe Kennedy already had one foot in the door. He had been to Harvard. My father didn't think I should marry the first man who asked me. And, uh, and still I was very much in love and still I didn't want to uh, offend my parents. So we used to have these rendezvous <laughs> that were um, rather music. <laughs> yes, clandestine. How did you arrange those? <laughs> well, as the moment arose, we, uh, we used to have dance orders in those days, you know, little cards where your dancing partners put their names for different dances. You'd have perhaps, I don't know, 15 or 20 dances. So he had fictitious initials that he put on so pe people wouldn't think that he was monopolizing my whole talk, uh, which of course I recognized. The favorite one was SS for Sam, Sam Shaw. And then uh, we used to meet after lectures. I used to go to lectures and then just meet him by chance, coming home, we'd walk a good deal in those days. And we still so that's Rose at 84. Notice perfectly coiffed, perfectly made up, perfectly dressed. This is another of the themes of her life that we will focus on today. And you saw that photograph that we have here on the left, and I think this is Rose at her Victorian peak. You can tell she's a Victorian little girl. She's with her, the first of her two siblings. She was the oldest of six, uh, three girls and three boys. Her father was the ebullient Honey Fitz, very extroverted, and Rose had that part of his personality and she loved to campaign even as a little girl, but notice how perfectly dressed she is here. And being the oldest, she garnered all of the attention of her father. Her mother was very introverted and Rose had a little bit of that in her in that she had to escape oftentimes, particularly from her boisterous nine children, and go be by herself. So what she did when they bought their compounded Hyannisport she had eventually two cottages, one after the other, prefab cottages on the beach at Hyannis, and that's how she would escape from the children. She would give the house over to them and leave and go read and pray and swim and do her correspondence. And then, sadly for her, two hurricanes came along and washed away the prefab cottage on the beach, and she said, so then I had to go to Paris. So she would escape frequently to Europe throughout her married life, as well as travel around the United States sometimes with her uh, sister Agnes, who's pictured here. I maintain that was um, part of uh, punishment for her husband, who was a womanizer, and I think Rose could not have not known that. So part of it was, you're going to womanize on me? I can't escape because I'm Catholic, so I can't get a divorce. You take care of the nine children, dear. I'm going off with my sister to Paris or to London or to Rome uh, or throughout the United States. The other is possibly this was her form of birth control because if she had stayed at home all that time, imagine how many children she would have had. She probably would have had 30 or so. She would have certainly surpassed Ethel Kennedy, who had 11. Uh, the picture on the right is Rose really making her, I would say, her political debut in that she's 16 in this picture, and she is launching a ship, the Bunker Hill, uh, in Philadelphia. She had gone there with her dad, who was by then mayor of Boston. And you can see she's already enjoying this time in the spotlight with him. She had hoped 
to go to Wellesley. She was a superb student, an all-A student uh, at Dorchester High School just outside Boston, and she really had a very good mind. And so she dreamed of going to Wellesley just outside of Boston. But one day her father was uh, walking down the streets of Boston, and the Archbishop of Boston accosted him and said, listen, I hear that uh, your daughter Rose, who was quite the Boston Belle, uh, the great beauty of Boston, I hear Rose wants to go to Wellesley. And Honeyfit said, that's right, sir. She, she does want to go. And he said, well, you can't do that. You're a Catholic mayor of Boston. You're an Irish Catholic mayor. You can't send your daughter to a non-Catholic institution. And that was the end of Rose's dreams. One of the letters that I found in these private collections and acquired on the left here, she's writing to a childhood friend and she has not realized that she's not going to Wellesley, and she thanks the friend for sending a photo to her, and she says, I can't wait to display it in my room when I go to Wellesley. Well, little did she knew, no, she was not going to Wellesley. In fact, her father sent her and her sister to a convent, not just any convent, but a Prussian convent uh, on the Prussia-Dutch border in Europe, and intended to keep them there for two years. She talked her way out of it after a year, but she stayed there with her sister for a year, and this was also very typical of how Rose dealt with problems in her life. She learned German, she learned French, she traveled with her sister throughout Europe, she made the most of it, but she really uh, really chafed against the, the strict rules there. The other reason we think that her father sent her there was to get her away from her love of her life, Joseph Kennedy. She had met him as a teenager, they were two years difference in age, she fell desperately in love with him, but her father didn't get along with Joseph Kennedy's father, who was also a politico in Boston, and he didn't want to have the Kennedys coming into the Fitzgerald family. So off Rose went. The other thing that she did at the convent was she became a child of Mary. That was the highest award that a girl could get from the convent of the Sacred Heart. So it meant she was perfect in her grade. She was perfect in her dress and perfect in following the rules. And you will see Rose at the very top of that photo with the other girls in the convent in, as child, children of Mary. Rose is the shortest one uh, in the back row. She was was a, a petite woman all her life, um, not over five foot three, and uh, always weighed very, very low in the low teens, I would say. And she always said she had a nervous tummy, so she ate very sparingly. I think in this day and age, we would probably say she had body image issues and perhaps even an eating disorder that she foisted in some ways upon her children because she was always so concerned with how they looked and what they ate. As Honey Fitz's daughter, as she ages, you can see her now, she's in her early 20s, and now this is taken in 1910, we think, at a Boston parade. Her dad has his, his hat over his heart. He's in the middle of the picture as the mayor. She's dressed like the Gibson girl, so she's always up to date in her fashion, always following the fashion trends. And she's surrounded here by her siblings, her younger siblings, but we don't see her mother in the picture. Again, her mother would tend to stay away from these public events. But for Rose, the love of her life was always Joseph P. Kennedy. She is pictured on the left with him when she met him as a teenager. The, both families, the Kennedys and the Fitzgeralds, came, uh, they went for their summer vacations to Old Orchard Beach, Maine. And Rose is depicted the second from the left, Joe the second from the right in their Victorian bathing costume. So notice the women are in full dress and stockings, uh, but Rose is already beaming to have found this boy who just captured her every single way. And so in October of uh, 
1914, they marry in Boston. Uh, she becomes, to her pride, Mrs. Joseph P. Kennedy, and she would write to anyone who wrote to her as Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy. She would write back and say, please call me Mrs. Joseph P. Kennedy. She was so proud to have married Joe. But as you probably know, it was not a perfect marriage. I've already alluded to the fact that uh, her husband was an incorrigible womanizer and apparently would pass that gene on to his sons. Uh, Rose uh, let him go in uh, the 1920s, in the middle of the 1920s. They had the family had just moved from Boston to uh, outside New York City so that Joe could do the stock market. And then he got the Hollywood bug, and he decided he would get in on the ground floor of movies. So he took off, left Rose with then seven children. Now she's away from her family. She's away from her parents. She's away from all her friends. She's away from her roots. And he goes off and just deserts her and leaves her for three years. And the picture that I have above Rose's at this time is Gloria Swanson. Joe was the business manager of the great silent screen actress Gloria Swanson, and he was more than her business manager. He was her paramour. And Gloria Swanson said in her biography, Rose had to know either that or she was just a great actress and just never let on. But she said, I'm certain she had to know. And so how did Rose deal with that? She never spoke about it. There was no Oprah to go on and tell her innermost thoughts to. She would mention in her memoirs that women who are married to politicians are subject to gossip, but she would never admit that her husband had had this long-standing affair, though everyone knew about it in Hollywood. And Joe would humiliate her by bringing Gloria Swanson into the family home in Hyannisport. So Rose writes in another letter that I discovered in from 1932, again to an old friend, and she hadn't written to this friend for some time, and she starts at the top and she said, I have had quite an interesting life. Um, my husband has been quite successful in the movies, and we went out frequently with stars, including Gloria Swanson. So the way Rose dealt with these difficult and inconvenient and hurtful issues was to legitimize them. So she didn't say, I am devastated. My husband has had an affair with Gloria Swanson. She made it sound like they were all friends. And this is typically how she took this, if you'll pardon the pun, looked at the world through rose-colored glasses. Now Rose gets to the world stage. I mentioned in 1938 the family moves to London, and Rose loves being the wife of the ambassador, the American ambassador. With her nine children, they were quite the toast of London town. And three weeks after she arrived with the children, she and Joe found themselves at uh, Windsor Castle. So you'll see this is a letter written by Rose, and she took out the stationery at Windsor Castle and wrote a note to her friend back in Boston. And she says, Dear Marie, Joe and I are leaving in the morning after a very brilliant weekend. We had Sunday dinner today with the two little princes. Princesses. Who were the two little princesses? Elizabeth, who is now the Queen of England, and her little sister, Margaret Rose. Uh, so Princess Margaret, Princess Elizabeth, and the king and queen. So that was King George, right? King George VI, Princess Elizabeth's father, and uh, Queen Elizabeth, the queen mother. And she says, and they were all charming. Love to all Rose. 
So three weeks after she arrives in London, this Irish Catholic girl who couldn't date Protestants, couldn't go to a Protestant uh, college, uh, fled from Boston to New York to get out of the anti-Irish Catholic uh, feelings and biases there, she finds that she and her husband are spending the weekend with the king and queen of England. It almost sounds like it would be too good to be true, but she loved it and she became an Anglophile, to be sure. And so I know Rose Kennedy was smiling in the great beyond that she so believed in this past summer on July 22nd when the current Prince George of Cambridge was born uh, to Kate and to William. He was born on Rose Kennedy's birthday, July the 22nd. So she shares her birthday with the future king of England. So I I promised you I'd do a what's new alert. So one thing that I developed uh, out of this uh, study of five years and and going through 250 boxes and reading everything I could get my hands on about Rose Kennedy and finding these new letters was that the most important role that she played in the family was to create this image of what eventually would be called Camelot by her daughter-in-law Jacqueline one week after President Kennedy's assassination. So this is the entire family gathered together at the embassy, the U.S. Embassy in England. Notice again, Joe, right smack dab in the center as the center of gravity, but rose to the left with her gown and her tiara and her two, um, two daughters off to the right, and then Joe Jr. standing to the left, Jack to the right, Teddy in front of his mother, uh, Eunice Rosemary, I would like to point out, though she did have this mental retardation, the Kennedy family I would say in that era mainstreamed her. We would call that mainstreaming now. They took her to England. They had her presented with her sister Kathleen at Buckingham Palace before the king and queen. She would go off to convent schools typically with a caretaker and sometimes Rose would have her tutored at home. She had her taught dance lessons, tennis lessons, sailing lessons, golf lessons, swimming lessons. Tried to have her do everything possible to feel normal and to feel like the rest of the family. But that too is going to have a very tragic end as we will soon see. Um, Rose's campaign style then really takes off for her as an adult in the aftermath of World War II. Joe Jr., you probably know, died in uh, August of 1944 uh, in World War II. He had enough, had flown enough missions as a Navy pilot to be sent home, but he volunteered for a very dangerous mission in August of 44. He agreed with a, a co-pilot to take a Liberator plane packed to the gills with explosives up over the coastline of England. They were to arm it. They were to bail out and send it unmanned towards those giant guns that were firing from the Nazis on the coast of France over into England and and bedeviling and killing many uh, innocent citizens. Um, Sadly, we don't know exactly what happened, but somehow after the plane was armed and before Joe and the co-pilot could bail out, the plane burst into smithereens and Joe was never found. So this is the first major tragedy that the Kennedy family uh, suffers in terms of an untimely death of one of their children. So it's Jack who steps into the role of Joe, the eldest boy, and starts to run for uh, elective office in 1946. He runs for Congress and he wins. And Rose is there every step of the way. Rose is there campaigning for him on the top right when he runs for Senate against Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. in 1952. And you say, well, I don't see Joe there. Where is Joe the father? Where's Joe Sr., the ambassador? Joe is politically toxic by this time because as World War II began, he was very isolationist. He was an anti-Semite. He was an appeaser of Hitler. 
And he began to speak out about these things, including a newspaper interview in which he said he thought that English democracy was finished and probably democracy in America was finished as well. As you can imagine, these are not very diplomatic statements. And so, in effect, he was ousted from the ambassadorship and was politically toxic from that point on. The Kennedy boys never wanted to be seen with their dad for a host of reasons. He was behind the scenes with the money, pulling the strings, strategizing. But it was Rose who was out in front. And you'll see her then in 1960. This is at the Democratic National Convention, which had just nominated Sun Jack to be the Democratic nominee for president in 1960. Joe is there in Los Angeles, but he's behind the scenes again. He's staying uh, out on the coast. And Jack takes his mother to the convention center, and she addresses the delegates. And you'll notice she's almost perfected that wave, that English wave of the monarchy. And, and you can see sort of the delight in, in the future president's face to have his mother there, although sometimes she really got on his nerves because she was always complaining about something, how he dressed or how he looked. And then finally, this portion here on the, on the far, right is one of Rose's final campaigns. This is in 1970. She's 80 years old. She would actually continue campaigning for Teddy up till she was 90, but with a bit less and less of travel. Here she is campaigning throughout the state of Massachusetts for him, and you will see Teddy Kennedy in a photograph, in the photograph. So he is pictured with his then wife Joan and three young children, and Rose is live on the scene at the podium with her eldest granddaughter Kathleen, who was Bobby's uh, eldest daughter. And you say, well, why is there a photograph there of Teddy? All right, think about this. This is 1970. I see this gentleman here already knows the answer to this question. Mrs. Kennedy, I found in her archives, she was receiving in the summer of 1970 staff memos from Senator Kennedy's staff saying, Dear Mrs. Kennedy, and I hope they addressed it, Mrs. Joseph P. Kennedy. So, Dear Mrs. Kennedy, we really need your help to campaign for the senator because of what happened last summer. Some of the senior citizens have lost faith in him. What had happened the previous summer? Chappaquiddick, summer of 1969. Teddy was up for re-election in 1970, and so Rose was one of the keys to go out and particularly speak to senior citizens' audiences at age 80. She could talk to them about issues that they cared about, and she could present herself as the perfect mother of this very imperfect son, but it would, it would give him legitimacy in the eyes of the voters of Massachusetts, and sure enough, they re-elected him. And the halcyon days of Camelot were just that for her. We've seen other pictures of her today, but this is one that she also loved. This is November 1961. She's in the East Room of the White House. You can see the president smiling broadly in his white tie and tails. Jacqueline Kennedy, the first lady in the middle, and her hand is being kissed by Pablo Casals. Uh, the great Spanish cellist uh, who had been exiled during the Franco years and had actually refused to come to any country and play. He had exiled himself to Puerto Rico. He refused to come to any country and play that had recognized the Franco regime. So he had not been in the United States since the Franco regime came to power, but he so believed in President Kennedy and his youth and his promise for the world that he stopped his own boycott and came to the United States. And there was Rose Kennedy in the front row, but now she's pushed down a little bit farther because she's not the first lady. She is the mother of the president. So in her letters she would say, sometimes I feel a bit left out because I'm just the mother of the president. And so I sometimes have to come at the back of the line um, after some of the other spouses. 
And then on this day, we all know where this story sadly is going to lead, November 22, 1963, just a couple of months after Rose had served as the First Lady substitute for the Haile Selassie State Dinner. Uh, she is at Cape Cod with her husband, Joe. Uh, Joe Kennedy Sr. had by this time suffered a debilitating stroke that left him virtually speechless. But she still tried to be with him as much as possible. They would take drives, they would have meals together, and he would have a caretaker in-house. And so that day, November 22nd, 63, she said she'd always remember. At that morning, she went to Mass. Every single morning of her life, she went to Mass. She'd come home, and they had had a lovely lunch. She said it was a crystal clear day in, on the Cape. And then um, she had taken a drive with her husband. And they came home, and she was having her afternoon nap. And suddenly she was roused out of this deep sleep by the television was blaring. And her niece, who helped care for uh, Uncle Joe, uh, came running in and said, the president's been shot. And she just couldn't believe it. And she kept saying, why, over and over, why, why? And Bobby called and said, Jack has been shot in a motorcade in Dallas, and it looks bad. And about a half hour or so later, he called back and said, Jack is gone. And Rose couldn't talk to her husband because he couldn't speak. And she asked that he be protected for one more night from that news. And so they unplugged all the televisions and the radios. And they had Teddy and Eunice come in the next morning to tell the ambassador that his son, the president, was gone. Um, so I want to play just one more link um, for you. This is on the Miller Center website. And it is from the tapes that the Miller Center very lovingly curates from all of the presidents who kept tapes of their phone conversations and other conversations. This, if you can believe it, will um, be a conversation on the phone between Rose Kennedy and Air Force One as it flies back to Washington with the remains of her son on board. So this is just a few hours after she's heard this devastating news. Uh, AF-1 from Crown, uh, Mrs. Kennedy on. Go ahead, please. Uh, hello, Mrs. Kennedy. Hello, Mrs. Yeah. Kennedy. Uh, we're talking from the airplane. Can you hear us all right? Over. Thank you. Hello. Uh, yes, Mrs. Kennedy, I have uh, two doubts for you here. do you hear in her voice? Clearly she was uncomfortable and wanted to get off the phone. I was always so impressed that the steward who linked her up with President, now President Johnson, who had, as you remember, took the oath of office on Air Force One in the cabin before they left Dallas, the steward says to Mrs. Kennedy, uh, Mr. Johnson on the line for you. And what does she call him? Mr. President, always the diplomat's wife, always poised, though she has just lost her son, the second son, to die in the line of duty. And so she makes it through that. It doesn't ever say on her voice, breaking. It says that for Lady Bird, emotional voice breaking. In fact, 
Lady Bird and Rose had campaigned together for Jack and Lyndon uh, in 1960. They had gone around the country, uh, including uh, in, in my hometown of Louisville. They, they came there and had campaigned. So she knew Lady Bird. She liked her and admired her, and Lady Bird very much admired Mrs. Kennedy, who, of course, was a generation older than she. Um, so it is just a startling piece, I think, of, of history uh, to hear Mrs. Kennedy on that sad, sad day for her in our, fa- in our country, to be sure. And we mentioned, too, now we'll come towards the end here to her philanthropy. So we see what she's doing politically, but her philanthropy is from her daughter, Rosemary. Rosemary, you may know, in addition to her mental retardation, was subjected to a lobotomy in 1941. that in and of itself, of course, became a very discredited medical procedure, but at the time it was viewed as uh, something that could help uh, quell the disturbed, uh, the mentally disturbed, people who had uh, agitation, people who had depression. It really was not meant for people who had at the time what they called mental retardation, but nevertheless, Joe Kennedy was always interested in what was the next medical breakthrough, and he thought that this was it. And so this lobotomy went very badly, and Rosemary was infantilized. So at the age of uh, 23 or so, all that work that Rose had put in to teach her all of the different sports, to get her tutored, to send her off on travels, all was for naught. And this young adult woman was sent off eventually to a convent in Wisconsin where she stayed for the rest of her life. And she lived into her mid-80s and she just died in 2005. And Rose and, and the whole family were not allowed to visit her. Um, the, Joe, by the way, who had not consulted with Rose about the lobotomy, so he did the, had the procedure done and then told Rose it had gone wrong. And she eventually told Doris Kearns Goodwin that was the one thing she could never forgive her husband for. I also came upon some interviews Rose did in the, in the early 70s that are here in Alderman Library that were conducted by then Franklin Roosevelt Jr.'s wife, Felicia Rogan, who lives in, still in Charlottesville. And she knew Rose Kennedy through her husband, FDR Jr. And she interviewed Rose in the early 70s and asked about Rosemary. And I was talking to Felicia, and she said, Mrs. Kennedy just broke down when she tried to talk about her daughter, Rosemary. So the family, as it was typical of them, when things went wrong, in addition to hiding things that they were very good at, they also tried to make them right. And so the way they tried to make this right was that Joe Kennedy Sr. founded, in honor of Joe Jr., the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation, that at first was said to be for poor children or underprivileged children. It very quickly became for retarded children. And it is from that that come the Special Olympics that Eunice Kennedy Shriver founded and Best Buddies and Homes for Children. And so the Kennedys uh, did give back uh, in a very special and very important way. And in the mid-1960s, you see Rose very joyful in... in, in New York, uh, breaking ground for the Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy. At that time, it was called um, Center for Research in Mental Retardation and Human Development. It has a change of name now, but it is still the Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy Center, and she was very proud of that, and she's breaking uh, ground there at Yeshiva University with her son, Bobby, who by then was senator from New York. And I mentioned to you earlier that Rose was uh, always keeping up with whatever media came along. I have no doubt that now she'd be on Facebook and she'd be tweeting um, because she just loved to take in whatever new kind of media would come on the scene. And so when television came on the scene, she campaigned on television. And particularly in the 1970s, and if, if you, like me, liked 
uh, talk television. Uh, you might remember Dinah Shore's show and Merv Griffin and on the far left there, uh, Mike Douglas in Philadelphia. And Rose would go on all these shows and in particularly to talk about mental retardation, raise money, tell people about it, educate people, tell mothers what they could do while expecting to avoid this problem with their children. She never knew what caused Rosemary's uh, retardation, but she would try to get the latest research and pass this around to people. But she was such a perfectionist that she would, se she would send a script to each of the hosts and say, this is what I want to talk about, so ask me these questions. And when the host might at his or her peril, depart from that. You can again watch these on YouTube. She, she gets very, not defensive, but she gets a little unsettled. And you can see her shifting in her chair. But she does answer the questions about her family to the best that she can. But she loved it, but she was perfectionistic. Merv Griffin once did an interview with Larry King, and he said, oh my gosh, one of, one of my most memorable uh, guests on my show was Rose Kennedy. He said she called me constantly. She sent me swatches of dresses that and she'd say, uh, Mr. Griffin, would you please see what this looks like on camera? Then she'd arrive at the venue, at the studio, three hours in advance. And she'd say, where do you want me to sit? And they'd say, well, Miss Kennedy, you need to sit here. Oh, that camera's too close. As she aged and became wrinkled from all that sun and Palm Beach and the Riviera and the Hyannis, she'd say, that camera's too close. Back it up. She'd say, keep going, keep going. Okay, it's back far enough. That's fine. I'm going to take a nap now. And off she'd go back to her hotel or to her apartment, and then she'd come back. But he said she knew exactly what she wanted, and they tried to give it to her to keep her happy. And then she herself said in her memoir, five years later, if you were writing a fictional script about a political family that lost two sons, one as president, one running for president, in the space of five years, you'd say nobody's going to believe that. And she couldn't believe it. She, she literally said she could not believe it when the word came that Bobby had been shot in Los Angeles right after he had declared victory in the Democratic primary in California. She had just been out there for a whole week. She, she worked with him there. She worked with him on that campaign in Oregon, which he lost, and he became the first Kennedy to lose a political contest there when he lost to Gene uh, McCarthy. Uh, she campaigned for him in Indiana in the primaries after Bobby had, had said he would run. And so she was once again totally stunned. Here she is at, at her son's casket uh, at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and she said the only way she got through that time and Jack's after his assassination was she thought of the Blessed Virgin Mary at the foot of the cross, and she kept praying to her to give her strength to bolster her at this terrible time. And then she really spent, in some ways, the rest of her life searching for solace, for this and all the other tragedies that continued to befall the Kennedy family. She continued to go to, to church every day, pray the rosary. She told her daughters, um, if you're nervous, don't take a drink. It just makes you fat. Pray the rosary. It will relax you. In 1964, in summer of that year, she escaped to France again. Here she is sitting at the Mediterranean uh, with Marc Chagall, the, uh, the uh, famous artist. And then, in, in turning 80, uh, she had discovered back in 1963 that she and Haile Selassie had almost the same birthday. So she traveled 25,000 miles, flew to Addis Ababa, and met with and celebrated Haile Selassie's birthday and her own 80th birthday uh, in 1970. And she remembered how to curtsy from the convent, and she curtsied to him. But she would say over and over, I will never allow myself to be vanquished. She also, I have to tell you, the other thing that I discovered took a lot of medication. 
I found her travel lists going through the 1950s and 60s where she'd list everything she would take on these trips and she took a lot of medication with her. A lot of anti-anxiety medication, such as it was in those days, a lot of sleeping pills. Uh, and she began to rely on those quite a bit. For her nervous tummy back in the, into the 1930s and probably before, she took paragoric, which I had never heard of, but a lot of people I've talked to have heard of it and said, oh, we had that in our family medicine cabinet. It was sort of like aspirin. Um, and, and my 92-year-old aunt said, oh, yeah, we took that all the time. Um, that's an opiate based drug. And so you know of many of the drug issues that the Kennedy family had. I wondered sometimes if Rose perhaps didn't uh, kick that off. Finally, she spent a lot of time in her later years, as I call, both literally and figuratively cementing the Kennedy image. On the left is her son's dorm room in Winthrop House at Harvard, where he stayed in the late 30s as a, a student there. She went back in 1970 and dedicated it for him. It is now run by the Institute of Politics, IOP, at Harvard, and I was given the honor of staying there when I was doing my research in Boston. And I have to tell you, that's a bit of an odd experience, sort of a ghostly, ethereal experience experience to stay in Jack Kennedy's room. On the right, you will see uh, Rose with daughter, granddaughter Caroline, son Teddy, John Jr., and Jackie. They are breaking ground in 1977 in Rose's old home area of Dorchester. This would be for the Kennedy Library, which was then dedicated two years later in 1979 and still stands uh, the beautiful edifice. How many people have been to the Kennedy Library? It's a gorgeous, gorgeous building, and I encourage you, if you are in Boston, to go see it. And then finally, Rose, uh, it, also about that time, this would have been 1969, in the mid-60s after Jack's death, she bought the old family home in Brookline. This was her first marital home where she and Joe moved uh, in 1914 and where the first four of her children were born. And up in the upper right-hand second-story window is the bedroom where Jack, the future president, uh, came to be. And Rose purchased the house from its private owners at that time. She supervised its entire restoration. She uh, recorded an audio tour of the home uh, so that when you would go from room to room, you would hear Rose Kennedy's voice telling you about her time there. And she then took the deed, and you'll see her pictured here on the top. She handed it back to the people of the United States, and it is now in the hands of the U.S. government. So if you go to Brookline, Massachusetts, a suburb of uh, Boston, you will see the president's birthplace, and you'll see that the house looks much as it did in 1917 when he was born there. But I was most taken with her remarks that day. And as she pointed up to that window where the president was born, and she talked about holding him in her arms, she said the following, what you do with your child can influence him and everyone he meets, not for a day or a month or a year, but for time and eternity. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? But she felt it was especially true of herself because she had produced so many children, boys and girls, who went on to do great things she thought for the world. What she had the hardest time accepting was, as she had said, she worked 30 or 40 years to produce these children and make them the people that they were to help the world. And then one time, talking to a magazine reporter, she said, and then in an instant, it would all be gone. And yet it was her faith that sustained her. So thank you so much today for your wonderful rapt attention, and I look forward to your questions. So if you have a question or comment, just raise your hand and I'll repeat it. Yes, sir, in the plaid here.
I was in the class of 56. And when Teddy came here to go to law school, there was a rumor that he was here because he had cheated on some exam or something at Harvard. Is there any truth to that? There is all the truth in the world to that. Yes, Teddy, in his first year at Harvard, following in the footsteps of his dad, Joe Jr., Jack, Bobby, and even Honey Fitz, who had attended Harvard for one year before dropping out, Teddy stupidly ran into a friend and mentioned he was having some trouble in Spanish, and this friend said, oh, I'll take the test for you. So the friend goes, takes the exam, which was not being given by the professor, who presumably would have known, but it was being proctored by a proctor who knew Kennedy and knew that Kennedy was not taking the exam and knew the boy who was taking it for him. So Teddy Kennedy was suspended from Harvard for two years, and they said, and we will determine whether you come back. So it was not certain he would go back. And he went to his dad, and in my view, this is the problem with the family, in addition to others. But the problem is there's always been a fixer. And the irony to me that if you read the Rose Kennedy book, you will see one of her favorite words was responsibility. She would talk about it in interviews. She would write about it. She wanted to be responsible. She wanted her children to be responsible. It was the R word, be responsible. But then she would say, well, when the kids got in trouble, they'd go to their dad, and he would fix it. And then when dad went away, it was somebody like Steve Smith, the son-in-law of Rose Kennedy, married to Jean Kennedy Smith. It would usually be a lawyer or, again, a business person, somebody in the family, a member of the family, or an in-law who would take care of everything, right down to, I thought when you were going to talk about Teddy here, most people who remember that time will say, you know he was frequently arrested for speeding and drunk driving. And there again, if you never have to pay the piper, what incentive do you have not to do that? And so the family constantly was take, making amends for the times that they did this. I came upon another letter that Joe Kennedy wrote to Teddy and said, you know, keep on your tour of Europe. I've taken care of the car you wrecked. So in addition, in addition to that, when the older boys were doing these foolish, stupid things as well, Teddy, the little boy, would be sent to Joe to tell what the older boys had done because they'd think, well, Joe won't get mad at little Teddy. So he, he actually learned at the feet of his older brothers about how to be irresponsible and how dad would fix everything. So it, it did, in my view, lead to that. And so what, what Joe did, to Joe's credit, he made Teddy join the Army. And so Teddy served two years in the Army. He says he wanted to go to Korea, because this would have been in, during the time of the Korean War. And he says that Jack and Bobby said, no, don't, because we've already lost a brother and mom and dad have lost a son. Please don't go into a, a war zone. That's his story. Um, and so he served outside of Paris for two years. So it was not hardship duty, to be sure. But, but he but did why serve. Did, why did we take him here, oh, is the question. I was only born it, in 1956, so I cannot say why in 1956 the University of Virginia Law School accepted him. But Bobby had been here, as you know. Bobby had, had gone through law school here. Um, you notice they didn't go to Harvard Law School. Joe Jr. did. Joe Jr. was an undergrad at Harvard and got into Harvard Law School and did two years before he signed up for the service. I would point out, on the opposite side of the equation, that um, all four of the Kennedy boys served uh, in the service, um, in the military service, 
And Joe and Jack could have found cushy stateside positions. Uh, instead, they used their dad's pull to get them into the most dangerous positions, uh, to be a Navy pilot in Joe's case and then ultimately volunteer for the mission that took his life, and Jack to go be a PT boat commander. And as I say, in Jack's case, he probably wouldn't have had to serve at all because of his ill health and his bad back and his undiagnosed Addison's. But as to why UVA accepted a cheater, I don't know. Um, also, they had to deal with this issue when Teddy ran for the Senate seat in 1962. And so what the Kennedys did, again, typically behind the scenes, they got the Boston Globe to release the story when they thought it would hurt the least, and they got, got it out and dealt with it. Uh, but the President Kennedy, who was president by that time, said to Teddy, you do need to get it out, because if you don't put it out, your opponent is going to put it out. So it did hound him. It hounded him until it was overshadowed by Chappaquiddick. <laughs> Others, yes. Oh, hold on one second. Here comes the... Thank you. Rose seems to have been very controlling. How did she deal with her daughters-in-law? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Rose, it, it, the question is, Rose seemed to be very controlling. Yes. <laughs> Check. Rose, very controlling. Someone at the Yale Club last week said, she seems like she was obsessive-compulsive. Yes, check, she was. So controlling for herself, controlling of others, and the question was, how did she get along with her daughters-in-law? Imagine having Rose for your mother-in-law. She got along with the ones like Ethel from the beginning, who were most like Kennedys. They, they always say Bobby married his sister, okay, because Ethel was as irresponsible and athletic and not... But, you know, not following the rules. And just a quick aside, and then remind me to come back to the daughters-in-law, but in terms of um, Bobby and, and Ethel and, and their 11 children, lack of rule following, um, when I taught at Sweetbriar, we had Robert Kennedy Jr. come to speak on the environment. And I offered to pick him up in Charlottesville and drive him to campus an hour away. Well, you can imagine that was an interesting drive to and from. And on the way back, and by the way, he was totally irresponsible for the entire... He gave a good talk, but he was totally irresponsible the entire evening that we had him. Wouldn't be on time and things like that. So we're driving back to Charlottesville, dead of night. We're down past the Rockfish River, and he says to me, you seem very rule-oriented. And I said, mm, you're right, very good, I am. I said, that's how I was raised. I went to Catholic school. I believe in the Barney Fife approach to life. And he didn't even know Barney Fife from the Andy Griffith show. And I said, Barney Fife, the rules of the Mayberry Jail. And he said, I don't, I don't know what you're referring to. And I said, the first rule of the Mayberry Jail? Anybody? Obey all rules. <laughs> So I said, that's what I do. And he said, oh, my mother, Ethel, told us, if you're obeying all the rules, you're missing all the fun. And I wanted to say, that has cost you a number of family members. It's true. They're not obeying the rules literally costs them their lives and sometimes the lives of others. But it shows you that difference in how they approach life. So back to the daughters-in-law. So Ethel got along very well with Rose. She would joke with her. She would accept Rose's strictures. Joan, who had an alcohol problem, had a harder time, but she was a pianist, and Rose loved to play the piano, so they got along pretty well. 
Jackie, you can tell in the letters back and forth between them that there are issues, that, that Rose is always after Jackie, do this, don't do that. Um, but you also see a thaw in that relationship as time goes by. Rose got along really well with Aristotle Onassis. She loved to go out in Paris with him to the point where Jackie once wrote to her and said, I saw that picture of you and Ari. She wrote to Rose and she said, I hope you're not going to steal him away from me. So she, she got along really, really well with her, but she was always after all of the family, the in-laws, the daughters-in-law, the sons-in-law, and one last quick story about that. She would cut out pictures of them in the paper. This is the daughters, the daughters-in-law, the sons-in-law. And if she found any fashion faux pas, she would circle them and send it back to the subject. So, so twice she, she did this, and I found these letters she sent to Eunice Kennedy Shriver and Sarge Shriver, who by this time was the U.S. ambassador to France, and they were in Paris. And Rose found this picture of Eunice, and she circled the problem. She said, don't ever wear shoes with a, uh, a strap because it cuts your ankle and it makes your leg look less charming. Also, keep your hands at your side because when you raise your hands up, it makes your hem uneven. And for Sarge, she circled his cuffs, circ cuffs outside of his suit coat, and she said, you need to have more showing. And she said, I had to tell the president this too. Now, I found no letters in return from Eunice saying, dear mother, I will make sure not to you know, wear strapless shoes and I will stand with my hands at my side. Nothing. Silence from Eunice. Sarge very sweetly and cutely wrote back, dear grandma, I will definitely, he said, I've sent all my suit coats out to be altered, so I will now look perfect when you see me the next time in the newspaper. So that was the way to get along with Rose, play along to get along. We have just a few minutes till we have to stop. Yes. I was surprised that he emphasized his father and being closer to his father than his mother. I had never heard that before. Do I detect a little Boston accent? Yeah, Cape Cod. Are you from Boston? Cape Cod. Cape Cod, yes. Um, wonderful. Uh, yes, he does talk more about his father than his mother. This is Senator Edward Kennedy's book, True Compass, that was his memoir that he spent the last year of his life writing. We think that this is why he asked, in part asked UVA to do his oral history. Uh, part of it too was that he was here in law school, but that he was probably pointing towards doing a memoir. Then when he received his fatal diagnosis in 2008, uh, he had to speed up the whole entire process. But he used the Miller Center UVA's oral history to write that memoir, True Compass, and it actually garnered pretty good reviews, and I think it is well done. But as you can imagine, I went through it with a fine tooth comb to see how he described his mother and father. And he does give a lot of credit to Rose, but you're absolutely right that he focuses more on his father, and that's as it should be because his father had a bigger impact on him. Joe and Rose, and Rose said this very straightforwardly and upfront, she and Joe divided up the division of labor with the children. Joe was in charge of the sons and she was in charge of the daughters. And that was pretty typical in that day. So it was Joe who determined all of their education for the boys, sent them to almost all virtually to Protestant schools. Rose was sending the girls to Catholic institutions and convents. And so it was... Joe, who had the most impact, I would say, on the boys. But Teddy gives his mother her due for, as he says, 
teaching them how to be perfect, if you will. And they fell short, and when they fell short, she would try to hide it or disguise it or veil it. But you're absolutely right the way you read that book. But it's, an, it's a good book. If you're interested, I encourage everyone to read it. Yes, sir. I practiced in Washington, D.C. 33 years. As a physician, you said. I, I knew James Watts, who did the lobotomy on, on young Rosemary. Yes. And uh, it was my understanding that her diagnosis was probably early schizophrenia or maybe a, a, a bipolar disorder, and, and that the, the dementia came from the surgical procedure itself. The second one is I also knew Janet Travell, John Kennedy's doctor, doctor. and um, that his Addison's disease was probably secondary to prolonged use of cortisone for his back pain, not an idiopathic Addison's disease. So yeah, you, that, that is you what might I, look at both of those things. Yeah, I actually have looked at both. Um, I've, I've looked certainly um, at the president's materials that were only just released in the early 2000s. Uh, all of Jack Kennedy's medical records were kept under lock and key and secret until uh, Robert Dalek, the presidential biographer, asked to see them. He was granted access for a day or a day and a half at the Kennedy Library. He was allowed to bring a physician with him, uh, but he was not allowed to make copies of anything. So you get, I think, a pretty good sense of the president's uh, records and what was at issue for him. And he was a very sick man, as you know, throughout his life and into his presidency. And it's a, a bit like Franklin Roosevelt. You know, if people had known how sick Franklin Roosevelt in, was in 44, would they have reelected him? Uh, would people have voted for Jack Kennedy in 1960 if they had known how sick he was, all the ailments he had, his high, high cholesterol, and all the drugs that he was on? Um, so th there's an issue there. Um, and then as for Rosemary, I've read those accounts as well. There's a a really interesting book called The Lobotomist about the men who performed, in, in their minds, perfected that surgery. But it is just stunningly sad, that tragedy, to think that this poor woman um, who in this day and age could be helped with all sorts of cognitive therapy probably and medications, they think she might have had some a touch of epilepsy, um, but to have performed the surgery on her and virtually infantilized her uh, is just one of the saddest stories, I think, of the Kennedys. With that, we're going to have to stop. I will stand out in the back if you have further questions, but thank you again so much for your attention.